And he said, oh, you're overcapitalizing and everything. So I bought it for $299 at the time, spent about $80,000 doing it up. And, you know, not many developers would do this, you know, because it's too much of a headache. Uh, but it was enhancing that product. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're back with Sam Khalil, the Managing Director and Founding Member of the DPN Group of Companies. He shares the importance of desire, why his goal was to create designer financial services and how he made nearly $400,000 more on a property than the developer said he would. There are many lessons to be learned in property and in life. One of the property lessons Khalil learned the hard way was not to drive too hard a bargain. In an effort to save $20,000, he ultimately lost out on a property that doubled in value in two years. You look at it and you go, there's the 1% difference from you know, 2 million to 2 million and 20,000. Is it a good property or a bad property by adjusting by 1%? It isn't. So if the property was fundamentally good, and so sometimes people miss deals because they're so adamant about the symmetry of numbers and just human psychology around that. When everything was right about it, again, look at it more as a percentage, right? And say, if I've done all the work and the homework and your due diligence as you should, is it going to become a bad property by one or 2% difference? And if it isn't, don't get so hung up on, you know, it should be more of a value-based judgment than a price-based judgment. But sometimes people make those price-based decisions when they should be making a value-based decision. He always has several meals worth of nuggets of wisdom on his plate and he isn't afraid to share. I think for me it's like sort of if you can marry what you're really passionate about and what you're good at, um, you can do really well. And so for me again, you know, it's sort of a, um, a theme of aha moments and it was, you know, as I said, I was in financial planning but I like property and I like design and what have you and so A, pushing our, our business and partners and into more property focused and using financial planning strategic approach to that. But then it was blending my passion for design. So I looked at our brand and, you know, we paid great graphic designers and everything. They said, oh, you know, financial service should do blue and everything. And I was always interested. I, like, I love luxury brands, not for the prestige. And, you know, I actually don't like wearing, um, I wear black most of the time. You know, <laughs> oh, he used to wear he used to wear jeans. So he's that got that California laid back. But I'm a mixture of you know put, put Tom Ford and, and Steve Jobs together, and it's sort of like blend, blend Italian and or you know high end design, but not for not for the um, idea of you know hey look at me I got brand. I don't like wearing big I don't want to be a billboard for a, a brand. All right, but what I do like about it is the craftsmanship, the design, and again the whole that theme of design. And so you know our office the way we designed it. And you can see sort of marble and nice lighting and what have you and that. But yeah, and even our branding, we went through black and gold and all that. And it was like everyone kept telling me the designers and the and the, and the marketers and this, you need to have the brand as accessible. And I said, no, I want to I want to make the brand as if Tom Ford or Giorgio Armani was doing a financial services brand. But it was interesting as we did it. it you know, I pushed away and we did the colors and we set up the office and we put so much design and everyone might, might have thought, oh. You guys are doing too, you're too successful. And we invested a lot and then we did our branding, our packaging and just even, you know, everything. And we, we went on a number of awards and it actually opened up great doors in, in, in different ways. 
In 2010, he sat down to come up with a vision statement for the organization. We didn't have anything at the time. We were subleasing off our accountants in a windowless office, you know, and, uh, but, but I wrote this vision statement and, but it was important because I, I stopped being a financial planner and being bound by the technical thing and not then just get into product and that. And it's, you know, if you've ever heard the Simon Sinek, how great leaders inspire action, people buy why you do something. Intuitively, we were doing that and, and, and writing down our core purpose and our core values and then really making sure everyone lives. And it was, it's then about gathering great people and, 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 and delivering all that. But as I said to you, this is a long answer to your simple question is what's the aha moment is I took that design element. So I did that in my private property investing or, or, or buying homes. And a lot of time we, we move in our numbers because I buy properties off the plan of friends that are developers, apartments, do them up and sell them, make profit. And I, kept, I did that a few times. So not so convenient because you're moving house a lot, but it was a great way to build personal wealth. And, and then I thought, well, how about if we start applying that into a business context? And the business context was let's focus on property, but people, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd look at find and source properties from other people. And so it's just an investment property, don't worry about it. But I thought, hmm, why don't we start designing the properties ourselves? So we engage our own architects. Let's get a bit of return per square meter. And, and, and one of the problems is when you went to some, um, you know, estates and developers like Lynn Lease and Stockland who started focusing on branding their own estates, they didn't want investment properties because they were rubbish and, and they, were, they were terribly built. But we started showing it, so they let us come into estates because they actually saw some of our product was better than the owner-occupied product. And, and it's that value through, des through design. And so and it was once said by someone about Steve Jobs, he understood desire and he created desirable products. And, and people you know, didn't put a value on design. It was always more the accountants saying, let's make sure that everything fits the dollar thing. But it was that usability, the aesthetics, the beauty and the purpose. It was not just skin deep, but it looks good. It had to function well. He found that his theme of aha moments also helped him along his personal journey. And whether I develop or build houses or do them up or, or what have you or in development or in our investment products, taking that design ethos and putting our core forward. Then, it, as I said, as we got into specialist disability accommodation. So to me, it was to take and blend these passions, put them in and, you know, it's never wrong if, like you said before, right? if it comes out of you and they're your core values and you clearly articulate them and get everyone to align. And that's, I guess, how any great, um, you know, I'll take a step because of how we um, focus on our culture. Not only do you design the products and the services, you need to design your culture. And there's a term now called cultural architecture. All right. And the people that are, that are you engage as consultants as cultural architects because culture divides them. So I mean, like, Again, like, you know, if you're born in Australia, there's no, no one gives you a handbook and says, this is how you are in Australia. The, the, the customs, the, the, the egalitarian society, all these things are just, they're the unwritten rules that you have. But when you try to build a team or a group of people, you need to have, like, what are our values? And so you look at the cultures that dominate, right? They have a certain value systems or companies, which now, like, you know, these companies have cultures and their economies are greater than countries. Well, you look at cultures of civilizations that were once world uh, empires, like the Greek empire. But, but look at where Greece is today, highly embedded and nowhere. Because culturally, there are things where people don't, you know, their values have actually brought them down. And so I think if you can really have strong values and articulate them and live them out and, and, and keep 
repeating them in a creative way and making sure everyone's a, a, a steward of those values in your organization. That's how you can have an impact. And so then that's why we have innovation in our company because of those values. The amount of work that's gone into that to make it so easy and simple and usable is, is incredible. And if you watch and listen to the videos, I say for, for, a, 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 for a one yes, there's a thousand no's. And it just shows that rigor and standard put to, to really develop something amazing. And it's the difference between excellence and perfection. So excellence is for wimps, perfection's for the real deal. And what I mean by that is that to excel, I mean, like, let's say there's average. If you go past average, that's excellence. You've excelled. But perfection is driving for, you know, the benchmark as a standard. And there's a difference. So some people are happy to excel, but, you know, and I am a perfectionist in that regard. But it is about saying, you know, let's set a standard here and not accept the status quo as our benchmark, but accept an ideal. And that can be a hindrance in its own right. But, however, that's how you can really impact or transform things because you, you, you say, let's make this the standard, not accept what status quo is. He's worked with numerous developers to take stock and add value, including with off-the-plan properties. One of the other people that impacted me, he was a developer developing luxury properties in Cronulla. And what I'd bought off the plan, I actually, like one of the ones that I made most of the money on was, it was the, the cheapest apartment in the block. It was a large two-bedder at the back. And there's a storage, but and I just said, look, could I, you know, make this into a eternal room? The unit was big, and could I spend a little bit more on on the landscaping and the interior fit out? And he said, oh, you're overcapitalizing and everything. So I bought it for two ninety nine at the time. Spent about eighty thousand dollars doing it up, and you know, not many developers would do this, you know, because it's too much of a headache. Uh, but it was enhancing that product, and then about, two, and it's funny because the, the value from CBA came out and said, oh, it's probably worth $450,000. I said, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And I sold it about four months after that for $820,000. So, and, and he, he said, yeah, I, I use my financial advisor to buy investment property. And I looked at him and thought, you're a valuer. If anyone would know, there's better opportunities. So uh, I didn't have much uh, regard for his, his judgment. But it was just, again, an intuition of saying, okay, what would, again, what would someone want in an area and added value through design? And, um, you know, and it was just, again, but buying, it was part of it's there, but also buying in an area that was lifestyle driven, which was, you know, a, a coastal property and that. So I said to you, one area I did that was um, uh, Wild Beach, which didn't work out, but I didn't actually get to design the product. I was just thinking the area would have its natural appreciation, but it didn't. So that wasn't great. But otherwise, thinking about, okay, what's the value in the area, Cronulla? And we did about, uh, I think it was two apartments, no, three apartments we did in uh, Cronulla. Wow. Okay. I didn't realize that kind of existed because whenever people say they buy it off the plan, they buy it off the plan and then, you know, go straight in and move. I didn't realize you could actually add more value to something that's new. It's just unique in that the time in the market, so it wasn't just all through my doing um, and also the fact that my friend was the developer and he allowed me to buy the product and add some value through some design. When it comes to his strategy, he's built his wealth in two parts. Number one is the house part. And so I'm currently in a build of a, a fairly luxury home at Cronulla, which is probably the largest asset that we have. And built that up. And, um, you know, and that's been, again, as I said, investing and, and, and moving step by step. So from Cronulla, moved to Cabarita, and that was actually getting an apartment off the plan from Mervac and it went down. That was a bad one at the beginning. 
But because it was in the water and we stayed, it doubled after a decade. But then it was to buy a block of land at Cronulla and, and, and that was the first one I designed from the ground up and it's at, coming at the end to finish. Uh, but the value increase not in the land but through the, the you know, design and me you know, investing a lot of time in it has added a lot of value. And also I've invested in a few apartments at Tamaroma and I sit on the owner's corporation. It was an old building um, and it's the highest apartment in Tamaroma, which is near Bondi Beach. And the, the, the renovation is started with the owner's corporation and it was an old building that looked like a Soviet hospital. And the, the, the chair of the owner's corporation times was pretty savvy. She thought, let's put two apartments, two penthouses at the top to pay for the renovation of the building. And so that just did its finalisation in the next three months and they're beautiful. I mean, they're 33-metre-wide penthouses. They're going for over $20 million. Uh, I've got my friend as an interior designer to help with that and, and so there's a lot of value added in that, um, you know, begin being a lifestyle location. And, and the one better is there, the rental appraisals are between, you know, fifteen dollars to $1,800 a week. Being a, a um, strong lifestyle locale. He's also involved with land developments and subdivisions, as well as income-based products. Our dual income product, when I began to blend the design but the economics together, we started looking for products we put to properties on one block of land and we favoured more land-based investments because the land appreciation. But, you know, and there was always the talk of, uh, you either have capital growth or you have high yield, you can't have both. And we said, why can't we have both? And not one of my, or not one of mine, but our customers upset that they make too much money. No one brings up and complains, oh, my, my rental property is paying me too much money. They just ring up and say, when can I do the next one? But they've still got land appreciation. And even, you know, so many I've read so many articles by so many professionals in the industry or some of the gurus in the industry, oh, you, you know, dual income properties, you shouldn't touch them, there's no after-sale market. And, that. and it was just absurd because they've existed for millennia. If people have shared accommodation for millennia. Coming up after the break, he shares his underdog story. We sold those for... Yeah, 2010, 2012, about 459,000, which, you know, it's unheard of in Sydney now, isn't it? One of the projects he's most proud of. It's been a long journey and there's been a bit of work and, you know, uh, a few challenges and stuff like that, but it's certainly been a great learning experience. We discuss all things Apple, Steve Jobs and Tim Cook. If the culture's there and it's, there are principles in that culture that ensure that it isn't tied to a genius. And that's next. I'm Taran Sham and you're listening to Property Investory. He recognizes the fact that people need supplementary income and that there's hundreds of thousands of homes with a second dwelling in Australia. And it supports someone's living, you know, or lifestyle I should say. You know, they live in their rent out in a room or something of a garage and all that. And there's just these absurd stories and just, you just don't look at the, you know, so I'm not sort of one of the industry people or go to the events or know who's the who in the industry. We just chart our own course and, and you know, and, and just go with, hey, look, this makes sense. Innovate, and you know, we, we even trademark the term one property, two rents, and it's been fantastic. So, design product, getting a bit of a return per square meter. We now have a property management business. We manage 1,300 properties, so we've got a great feedback loop, and that's growing really well. And, um, you know, and, the, and, and as I said, generating a high rental yield and capital growth as a product. And so, fundamentally, I, you know, I haven't built my portfolio solely in that stuff there. I've done some other more development based. So which is more of a business and requires a lot of time. So it's not something 
our clients come to do that you know they're interested in passive you know they've got their, their their careers their businesses and what have you and that's far more easily replicable and sometimes some like i said to you i would have been better to buy one of those products instead of that place at well beach in western sydney in jordan springs one of the areas which was like i said was in, did far better than that place at uh well beach you know and it was a stock on the state that you know people made fun you know we, we sold those for you know, 2010, 2012, about 459,000, which, you know, it's unheard of in Sydney now, isn't it? So, Waverley Council in Sydney's eastern suburbs had put a fire order on the building of temporary apartments. All in all, it was going to take between $8 million and $9 million to get the building up to standard. But the building had no balconies, didn't have a car park, and it was a concrete cancer. So you'd spend $10 million to bring it up to it. Trash, like I said, it looked like a Russian hospital, old Russian Soviet hospital. So uh, the chair at the time, Christine, she said, oh, look, you know, why don't we get a development, get some architects, got a great eastern suburbs architect. I wasn't in the building at the time. And I only found out through one of my architectural newsletters. That's what got me interested. And I saw this thing, oh, look, you know, penthouses are going to go on the top by Tobias Partners as an architect that I've followed. And I went and had a look at it and I looked up on real estate. Oh, there's a one better for sale. And at the time, it was $605,000 in 2014 and 2015, yeah. And so I thought, yeah, and, but you looked at what the prices are, you know, and this is gun barrel views of the ocean, never to be built. You know, yeah, and, but, and, but it said, oh, you know, once it's done, there'll be, you'll get a car space, there'll be new balconies, the whole building will be renewed with the sale of these penthouses. So there's a risk at the time, but again, you looked at it, you would say, there's no way I want this. But it was having the vision, but knowing again through design. Now, it's been a long journey, uh, but it's, it's paying off in the end and it's, come, it's taken a lot of my personal time to get involved in it. Anybody strolling the Bondi to Bronte walk can see the building in all its glory, where it now has eight stories, including two penthouses. To top it off even further, it can never be built out. It's an anomaly. It was actually Harry Seidler's first building in Sydney, but he disavowed it because the people who built it didn't build it right. So there's a lot of remedial work in that. And it's it's a, it's an iconic project, but it's also a landmark project because the New South Wales government based the, the, the change in the residential or into the strata laws that allowed that 75% rule now, because a lot of buildings are now getting up to their 40, 50, 80 year old, and they have to be renewed. And before you had to get 100% of the vote to get it over the line, but this was the test case in a sense. Um, and now you can get 75% of owners uh, to vote for either selling or renovating. And that's what we're going to start seeing now is a lot of renewal of these old buildings and some where it's permissible are building something on top to help fund the renovation. If you want to look at the project, it's called Sky Tamarama. So if you, if you just Google it, Sky Tamarama, S-K-Y-E, if anyone wants to look at it, it's, uh, it's got an interesting story and there's been a few articles written about it. It's been a long journey and there's been a bit of work and you know uh, a few challenges and stuff like that, but it's certainly been a great learning experience for me as well as his love for books, which have helped him along his journey, he acknowledges he also owes a lot to his faith, church and community. You know, I observed how things were done and the great leaders in the church in that regard. So then it was probably more observing and reading about great business leaders and, and you know, and people and admiring companies. One of the companies I, I love for years is a hand wash or a, a skin products company called Aesop. You know, yeah. Again, a design-driven company, and I love that Seaport. And recently, it's just been bought by Estee Lauder for a couple of billion dollars. And it's a great success story. And But, you know, when everyone was building each store that looked the same, they made every store different. 
and they designed it for its own location and that. So I followed more brands and stories and read about, like I said, reading about businesses. And actually, there's a couple of influential books on that. So one was called um, 100 Great Businesses and the Minds Behind Them. And I think it was written by uh, a couple of Australian journalists. And it's a great book. Um, and it was just about three to five pages based on 100 different companies, everything from the starting of Kellogg's to Apple to Google to realestate.com. And then, then they wrote another one called 58, uh, 50 Great E-Businesses and the Minds Behind Them. But it was just inspirational stories. And you just looked at these all these different companies and how they started and that. So that to me was interesting. I said... Uh, he was also influenced by Apple, Warren Buffett, and one book in particular. And I'd say probably one of the most impactful books was a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. And that was, again, transformation, which, which was, again, the principles out of that was, you know, again, it wasn't a self-help book. It was, it was based on principles and empirical research. He was a Stanford professor. And he didn't, it wasn't just him writing it. It was a research team of 25. And that there was, you know, so at the time of my life, I was, again, I was sort of still volunteering a couple of days a week in my church and doing, and I was torn between the two. And, and you know, and one of the key principles in that book was find your hedgehog, which is what can you be, what can you be passionate about and be the best in the world at? And, and, and great companies were ones that were successful by what they didn't do, what they chose not to do. And it was at that sort of juncture reading that, A, we cut the financial and just started focusing on the things we were going to do. Even personally, I made decisions to have more boundaries and limit what I should do. And then again, one of the principles in that was, you know, great leaders focused on first on who, then what. And it was all about getting good people. And so I'd write down in my diary who's next. So I'd try to collect talented people and, you know, to have all these businesses, all these opportunities was always about creating talent and, you know, recruiting talent, inspiring them and, you know, making them part of your culture. And that was, so that was a very influential book for me. It was good to grow. The culture's there and it's, and it's you know, uh, and there's, there are principles in that culture that ensure that it isn't tied to a genius. And that's what, and, and Steve Jobs was intentional about it. He actually got, again, some Stanford to make sure to try to codify the, and make sure that it wouldn't, um, be linked to him. He, he was aware of that problem where everyone would look and say, what would Steve do? And you hear Tim Cook say that all the time. I, I, I need to figure out what I needed to do, not what Steve did. And he was conscious of that as well. If you met yourself, say, 10 years ago, what do you think you would have said to him? Certainly focus a lot more. I mean, I, I know I shared that in, um, you know, saying that was a transition, hearing that from good to great. But to even say no more to things that were really good opportunities or what I thought would be. Um, and so just to be more disciplined in limiting what I was doing. He got some opportunities that weren't necessarily core and that seemed okay, but that took a little more time than he would have liked. Also in, uh, I guess, the type of people we tried to emulate in our company was, was you know, try to get more consultants internally and a um, uh, my business partner, they watch some of those uh, real, top real estate agents in the US, you know, the million, million dollar hour, whatever in that. And I went and listened to some of those guys and we spent a lot of time trying to replicate the talent at the top and sometimes that wasn't the answer. And it would have been just better that we, we really focus on building infrastructure around our key directors and so because they've, they've, they've always found it hard to find people, those great sales guys. And so it was like, okay, what do we build? Let's focus on 
instead of trying to you know, farm out all this business to people that sort of just didn't get what we get. So there was a lot of time wasted around that, you know. And it's, I think sometimes the appeal is I'll, I'll just get someone to do the work and I'll sit back and get the reward. <laughs> and that didn't work. So it, it, was, it should have been quicker to make those judgment calls and just run it a little bit leaner um, in that regard. Looking forward to the future. What are you most excited about, say, in the next five years of your journey? So something we've been working on for a while, and I don't know if I'm sure you've been in the property industry or, or education of people in property, is, is housing affordability and rental affordability. So we're just about to release a white paper we've been working on for a while called Multiply the Supply. And it, again, it's from our wheelhouse where we're building these uh, dwellings that can house two, two families, basically. And so what we find really um, missing out there, it's a really simple thing. It's already happened in... New Zealand, the UK, and California, is we just basically going to lobby the government. We want to get a change.org. So everyone just stay tuned for it. It's called Multiply the Supply. We want to get a petition going and we want to basically uh, get the, uh, laws, planning laws changed at a state level that allow any, where, where there exists one house on at least a 300 square meter block, a duplex to be built, two dwellings. And it can be done. Um, under a CDC private or a compliant development consent. So councils can't deny it or delay it. So the idea is, you know, I mean, the federal government says, you know, there are at least 10,000 affordable houses over the next five years. You've got 350,000 immigrants coming in the next 12 months. That's like one and a half week supply. Uh, so, and there are families, there are people who've been displaced, they can't live in it. So the only way you're going to release hundreds of thousands of blocks, uh, properties to market where there's already existing infrastructure, as you say, where there is one house, allowed to. It's a very simple solution. And it doesn't cost the government anything because the private sector, people will say, well, I can lock the value. So it's really just land utilisation. It's not high rise. And the fact is by 2030, 32% of households will be single person households. And, and over 50% will be you know, one or two person households. With that, he notes that the idea that every home needs to have four to five bedrooms is impractical. So if you can unlock all of the land supply in, in regional areas within our cities, because the problem's all over the place and there's nothing on the horizon that is going to bring enough supply and you can't build all high rise because everyone doesn't live in high rise. But if you can just say where there's a block of land and if you remember years ago, I don't know if you do, but people, oh, people used to subdivide when they had you know 1,200 square meter blocks. They, they're not down at it. But what's happened is the planning laws of everyone's done that. No one does that anymore because... No one's got a 1,200 square meter block, but they're rare. And the problem you have also is that the councils who hold, who are the gatekeepers here, the councillors are voted in by the existing landowners who then protect their ownership. And we don't want anyone else to live here, so you get nimbyism. So the only way you can change this, and the mandate's really coming now because it's this, we've got a, there's, there's, it's, it's, it's unfortunate because you've got a, a um, section of society that can't get into the property market, but it's also affected, it becomes generational because then they can't help their kids. And you create a massive divide because those that have then can compound wealth, access the equity and keep building wealth. But if you can't get into the market because it's not affordable, and so we've got a systemic issue, and if governments really want to do it, it's, it's very simple. I mean, it's not the only solution, but it's a simple one. And you can do this all the way out to Western Sydney and that. You just create great planning laws that improve the standard. We, we want high standards in these laws, not to dilute them. And what it will do is regenerate all of the old inefficient old building stock that's not efficient because there's the economics to do it. 
And as I said, if you do it as a private certificate, and they've done this, as I said, in other nations that are struggling with the same issues, if, if you don't let council get in the way and you make it a state-based law, and that's what we've done with our product, the dual income product is based on a, the rule that you can do a, a secondary dwelling on a 450 square metre block, but it's a single title, so you can't sell it separately. And this was done over a decade ago. That set of environmental planning is great because councillors can't stop it and it can be done. What we're saying is update that, push it around. So again, long answer to a short question, what's the future there? But I'm passionate about this because again, what's our core purpose? To empower millions of people to live the life they want. And if we can now go into lobbying and take, again, what our DNA is through great design, good innovation and that, you can have transformed. And that's probably one of the most pressing things in our society now is somewhere to live. And if we can unlock more home ownership and rental affordability, just purely through supply and just the solution sits right in front of us, that would be that. And probably then the other thing is um, creating institutional funds to do what we've done for clients. And probably finally, my biggest dream is um, to get into vertically integration into building and to create a prefabricated building technology company where you manufacture the houses, build them in a beautiful design. I guess it's like cars, treat houses like cars. Um, because of the model that we have, if we can, if we can manufacture them with, with beautiful design, you, like no, no one goes into a dealership and goes, I'd like to design my own car. There's been you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions, invested in the design and the engineering, but you know the price and the product gets delivered to you. The only way you can do that is if you have a limited number of products, but spend all the money in design. So you, you remove a level of choice, you allow a little bit of customization. you can change the wheels and you know, the color and that, but no one's going to spend hundreds of thousands in the design and top-end architects for project homes. But what happens if you someone else could do it at that level, infuse that all in there, manufacture and deliver it? So there's a lot more to come, Tyrone. <laughs> well, Sam, I'm going to have to say you have achieved so much in such a you know your your life as well. How much of that success that you've achieved is due to your hard work, skill, intelligence, and how much of it do you think has been contributed towards luck? I would first of all say not luck but opportunity. The fact that I'm in Australia, and, and one, of, one of the actually other books that I like is Outliers, which is by Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, and he demystifies success because it would be arrogant to say this is just purely my hard work. The fact that I just live in Australia, the, the finance system, the opportunity affords me, like if I was in Sudan, I would not have the same opportunities as I have in Australia. So half of it is just the fact that I'm in this nation. The laws and the opportunities, the, the great financial institutions and all those sorts of things. Uh, and then, yeah, the balance would be, you know, certainly hard work, persistence, diligence, and the people that, that I work with and surround myself with or, or, or connect with. Thank you to Sam Khalil, our guest on this episode of Property Investory.